It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I am executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. Uh, with me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the uh, Express News Group. Bill, how are you doing this morning? Good morning. I am well. Good morning, everybody. And we have a good panel this week. Uh, as we do seem to do every week. Uh, this week, joining us for the first time, Steve Wick, Executive Editor of the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Thanks thanks good. for having me. Good to be here. Good, good to have you. Uh, we have Christy Sampson, who's the Deputy Managing Editor of the East Hampton Star. Good morning, Christy. Good morning. Good to have you. And Beth Young, Editor and Publisher of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Hello. So, uh, it's all Cuomo all the time right now, right? Uh, everything, everything seems to be to be coming up Cuomo at the moment. Uh, it, I, I get the feeling that uh, with the start of the uh, problems that the governor Andrew Cuomo has been facing, a lot of people are now uh, feeling a little more free to talk about about issues that they've had with the governor, and it's starting to become an avalanche. Uh, but uh, it's it's a particularly bad thing. Uh, some of the things that came out this week uh, that had to do with access to care. That's a big deal, right, Steve? Because um, there's actually state law that says that the governor can't uh, can't allow, can't, can't provide access to, to anything. Right. There's a state law that specifically bans this kind of thing. Yeah, this is this has been a horrible couple of weeks for him. I mean, I think you know, when you talk to people who've long been around him, Joe, uh, they would say, well, we've always known his personality has been kind of a bully all along. He's been very intimidating to people. But that all changed in the last few weeks with all these allegations. And it seems like every couple of days uh, for a while there, there was another allegation of, of sexual harassment. And then this week, this notion that his CNN brother, Chris Cuomo, got, you know, access to health care before anyone else. It's just it's and honestly, it's just turning people off. And we wanted to try to get our arms around it in a different kind of way. So we asked uh, Anthony Palumbo, who's our first district uh, state assemblyman uh, and an attorney. Newly, newly elected, right? Yeah, newly, newly elected to the Senate. He had long been in the assembly um, to write a guest column for us. And it turned out to be a very strong guest column uh, in the sense that it's less an opinion piece, Joe, than really um, a kind of a bill of particulars kind of an indictment. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. And again, there's very little of him in there. He just points out the things he's done that uh, he really feels need to be looked at closely uh, from both the deaths in nursing homes, but also he's raising, Tony's raised the issue of group homes where uh, there also, according to the state health department, there have also been deaths and there are group homes all over the place, particularly out here. And then now we have the issues with Cuomo of healthcare access, which has been an extremely sore subject out here. And it, the group homes thing, I know um, I had actually spoken with somebody who's involved with a group home and they had a, a real issue getting PPE and other other uh, different kinds of equipment that they needed early in the crisis. So, yeah, it, I mean, it, it really hits home. Beth, I wonder, this This is sort of going beyond politics now, isn't it? I mean, Anthony Palumbo really is a Republican. Is. He's a Republican state senator. But, Beth, he, uh, I don't think, I think the criticism that the governor's getting now is is coming from all camps, isn't it? 
Yeah, and I think you know the media angle on this with with Chris Cuomo is really, I mean, it's a huge black eye for CNN. Uh, but w- when Chris originally got sick, you know, it was like, how did how did he find out before everybody else? He's on the air saying he has COVID when nobody can even get tested for it. So I'm surprised that didn't come out sooner. Yeah, but I guess nobody wanted to say anything bad about the governor for a long time. Well, I think you're right, though, that the CNN, it makes Chris and CNN look particularly bad. Um, first off, he really couldn't cover once yeah. once all hell broke loose for his brother. What was he supposed to do um, as a major figure at CNN? And now this. Well, the, he had he had been prohibited from interviewing his brother prior to the pandemic. And then CNN came in and and, and gave him permission to have, you know, have the governor on on his show, which, you know, certainly added to you know to the to the the, the, myth. the to the myth to the luster around the governor and the job that he was doing as uh you know air quotes uh, you know america's america's governor um, you know what you know what i think i think cnn made a calculated choice that it made for good tv and so we can set aside the journalistic ethics for a minute because of the unusual circumstances, just because it made good TV. But Chrissy, I think this is sort of a demonstration of why you don't set aside journalistic ethics to do good TV. It it always comes back to haunt you. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, on the South Fork, the East End, um, across our region, the East End, we have some of the most ethical practices and you know, we don't have a lot of the issues that you see coming up with conflicts of interest and, um, you know, that sort of thing, because we have all such amazing integrity out here. And yeah, that's a really good point, Joe. Um, yeah, we we talk about that, that we all sort of do know people and, and small towns. When you work for a small town newspaper, you have connections and you have friends and you sometimes have family who who are involved. And, and if we had to ask everybody to to. Uh, you know, to step aside and not cover a story. I mean, we, we have to learn to balance that. Yeah. But we wouldn't, I don't think we would take the step that CNN did. I think that, yeah, I, I think that. Well, one example that. I can give you that was really kind of alarming for me when I came to Times Review three and a half years ago from Newsday, um, I didn't realize, I mean, I'd, I'd long seen the use of the police blotter to list things going on in the police department. But one day a neighbor knocked on my door and said, hey, um, can you make sure my wife who got picked up on DWI is not in the police blotter? And I was like, no, I can't do that. All right. And then maybe a couple of weeks after that, a town official called and said his his wife had been picked up. And yeah, please keep it out of the police blotter. And I told the guy, I said, my God, if we play games with the police blotter, mm-hmm. you know, where does it ever end? So. Again, I didn't know that coming from a bigger paper to a small community newspaper, that getting your name in that police blotter for drunk driving uh, is a horror show. And so they <laughs> they both called and said, hey, can you take my take a name out? And it was like, no, can't do that. Well, I think there's a mis- misconception out in the community that we do that. And I think I speak for all of us that that absolutely is not true. And I've made the point that we have had reporters who got DWIs and ended up in the police blotter. We, 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 we don't, I'm not, not, not proud of that fact, but it's a fact. And, um, and if I got a DWI, God forbid, uh, I would certainly, my name would be in there. It's just how it works. And I, I, I think people don't realize that, Beth. 
Uh, Brian Boyhan used to always brag in the office. Um, uh, uh, he and Julie Lane went investigating pesticides on uh, on a golf course, and they got arrested for trespassing, and they put it in the police blotter. <laughs> was, he was so proud that he was in his own police blotter. That's almost a badge of honor. You yeah, know, back, exactly. Back to the governor for a minute, Chrissy. You you talked with some some young people locally to get some perspective on this, which I think is kind of interesting. So I can tell you in a broad stroke that the governor's actions and, you know, the allegations and everything um, are on the minds of young people. So I recruit for Stony Brook University's journalism program. And in the past month, I've been talking to kids directly about um, journalism and reading their school newspaper reports. I mean, the kids are writing about this in their school newspapers. So they're very, they're very aware of it. They have opinions and, you know, in the, um, like believe the accuser, uh, movement, you know what I mean? Like the me too thing. Um, that's very much on their minds still. And those are the future voters. Are they divided or are they pretty much united, uh, that, that they believe the accusers and, and have issues with, uh, everything that's coming out about the governor? Yeah, they believe the accusers. They're not on the governor's side here. Um, And that is, um, you know, I wasn't I I was a little bit surprised by it because, you know, there are people out there who are willing to say, well, Governor Cuomo did a lot of good things during the pandemic. Maybe we should, you know, like go easy on them. But I don't, you know, these kids across Suffolk County, not even just limited to the East End, but this is on their minds and they're very uh, disappointed with our governor. I think that's a really great, great way to approach that story. Um, But getting back to small town newspapers, it's like who you endorse, who you don't endorse. Um, That game we play every fall or every election cycle of trying to figure out how to do this in a way that doesn't make us look like we're entirely one-sided. But to get back to one of your points, Joe, this is, this is both sides coming out and basically condemning the governor of the state of New York, who just a few months ago was kind of a hero of doing it right. And now he's, he's absolutely seen as, as completely, completely failing. He stepped into a, a total- leadership vacuum. I'm sorry, say that again, Beth? He stepped into a leadership vacuum at the start of the pandemic. I mean, he, he never would have become this kind of hero if we weren't desperate for a leader. Right. You know, I feel like we can hold two opinions at once. I feel like I've never been I've never been a fan of Governor Cuomo's, quite frankly. Um, but I do think he was remarkable um, at a time when we really needed that kind of leadership during the crisis. Um, it's OK, I think, to give him credit for that, while at the same time saying that this this kind of behavior um, is just inappropriate. I guess the next question then is, do we think he's going to resign do we think he's going to run for re-election? Do we think he can win if he runs for re-election? What, what do we think the future is for the governor? I think it's just it's just too much of a snowball now. I, I think he's a, I think from from what you from what you read, he's he's a stubborn guy and he may try to hang on, but I don't know how he can govern effectively. Um, you know, with with this cloud hanging over his head, with with like you know everybody said both both sides of the aisle you know opposed opposed to him at, at this point. I don't know how you move forward. Um, and particularly since the state legislature seems to be taking actions to, you know, sort of like limit his uh, powers. Yeah. You know, I think that there's deal. an awareness. That's a really big deal. I thought it was also really. Um, go ahead, Beth. 
there's much less of a need for executive orders at this point than there has been right. for a while. So it's yeah, they it's took back a lot of the the special powers they gave him early in the process, back when we needed leadership. I think it all sort of ties together when he was stepping into that leadership vacuum. Um, I found it interesting that, and to me, I mean, I don't want to be too cynical, but it felt like a naked attempt to change the conversation when it was announced yesterday that uh, Albany had come up with a plan to legalize marijuana. Now this, the governor had been reticent to do this for, for some time. And, Wow. While now he's seen the light, I wonder what the impetus was to to make that choice at a time when he needed to change the the conversation a little bit. Um, But that has a that has an enormous potential impact on uh, the economy, on the region in general. I mean, it's it's a can you even imagine this conversation 20 years ago, Steve? It's I mean, it's amazing. It's it's actually staggering that now we're we're heading in this direction. And and two things really concern people out on the East End and the North Fork. And I would think Riverhead maybe even more so. Where is this going to all be grown? Um, there's going to be such a demand for cultivated marijuana. Um, it's hey, gonna, maybe it'll revive the local uh, agricultural I mean, industry. They're going to be what? Well-guarded greenhouses with <laughs> armed guards and, and, you know, German shepherds. I mean, where, where are they going to grow this stuff? Well, they're growing it on the main road for CBD. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, the hemp growing out here is now beginning to grow with Solo Viev buying, I think, more than a thousand acres, we've said. Um, but. Well, you know. and the, the Shinnecock are setting up shop for medical marijuana already on um, on on their territory, um, so they would presumably step that up a little bit. I think they've talked about that. Yeah, well, we had Shinne Bullock at our uh, Express Sessions event talking about economic development for the tribe. Um, I asked the question: are, are you poised to to make the change if the state? decides to legalize marijuana in a recreational sense, uh, would that dis- dispensary make the move from medical to that? And I think her answer was, uh, she chose her words carefully, but I think the, the bottom line answer was yes, that they were ready to, to sort of move with the state. Although she made the point that the state's laws don't really apply uh, on the reservation, but I would think that if the state legalizes recreational use, it yep. makes it that much easier for that dispensary to become. She, she said the state laws don't apply, but the Shinnecock were committed to following the guidance from, from the state right. law. Yeah, that's a whole separate issue for the nation. I mean, if there's going to be a lot of money to be made. And uh, the question is, where is it going to be grown? Can local communities opt out? Uh, how much money will the state bring in? And if, if this brings in X amount of dollars, Joe and Bill and everybody... And then five years from now, there's another economic crisis. What do you turn to then? Well, no question. County had, uh, Suffolk County had talked about opting out Yeah. Um, the first time this came around. And I think Nassau had decided to opt out. I think, that, I, you know, one of the big one of the big roadblocks is is the, the whole um, it wouldn't be DWI, but but driving under the influence and how to how do how do you determine if somebody's under the influence of marijuana? And I think the police unions are are really opposed to um, to you know to legalizing recreational marijuana because of that. The flip side, Beth, I can't imagine Suffolk County opting out with yeah. the fiscal crisis that they face well, they, and the the windfall this could bring. Yeah, they they got so much pushback from the public actually 
two years ago. Um, but then it just, because the state never ended up legalizing it, it became a moot issue. But um, yeah, I mean, it's so much harder to determine. I mean, you, there's no breathalyzer for pot. Right. So, yeah, when you, whoever invents time. that, that'll be the next, yeah. the next billionaire is whoever invents the, the ability to do the, the on, on-demand chemical test for, for marijuana, because that's been the, the big stumbling block um, in the police community is the inability to, to be able to determine that, as Bill said. I think that's been where, where that's been rooted, no question. THC stays in your blood, so. Yeah, absolutely. I also was really intrigued that the legislation that they're talking about would include I believe they were described as lounges where you can go to oh, use marijuana, but you can't you can't have a liquor license at the same time. So you can't drink and use marijuana, but you could go to this lounge to consume marijuana. Can it be next it, door it, to a bar? <laughs> it, it reminds me of an opium den or something. It's just yeah. very well, very you know, as, as a part time Uber driver, I see this as an opportunity. <laughs> I suspect Uber and Lyft are behind uh, this measure, no question. Lobbying, lobbying. <laughs> lobbying hard, no question. Absolutely. This is Behind the Headlines. Uh, I'm your co-host, Joe Shaw, along with Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. With us today, Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group, uh, Chrissy Sampson of the East Hampton Star, and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. Uh, so let's switch gears here. Steve, you have a, a story uh, this week about a book that came out about a topic that that really um, touches on all of our communities, right? It's it's about the the we talked about the agricultural past, and uh, there's this is a little bit of a a chapter of our agricultural past that maybe has gone unexamined for for too long. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. Um, the the farm labor camps that started in the 40s and ran up until the mid-2000s, uh, the last one was in Kutchog about 2006, uh, were home to hundreds of mostly Southern-born Black men and women who were kind of lost on the, the migrant trail and ended up in these last camps unable to go anywhere. They were notoriously bad. Mark Torres, an attorney in the city, has come out with a book uh, called Dust for Blood about the history of these camps. And one kind of real shocker in it for me, Joe, was uh, the number of children killed in fires at these places, particularly in Riverhead. Uh, where there were duck camp, duck farms on every salt creek in Riverhead at one point before they were all shut down. And uh, there were fires at these places where children died. And you, you, you can't help but go through the book, and we wrote about it this week in both the News Review and the Suffolk Times, and not come away feeling that white kids would not die at this kind of numbers without government taking some kind of an action. It really, this, the history of these camps really reflects horribly on local government allowing hundreds of these things. I mean, they were all over the South Fork, all over Riverhead, all over the North Fork. There was even one on Shelter Island, allowing these things to go on year after year after year with all the problems they had. And at one point in the book, Mark talks about there was a desperate need for labor to work on these potato farms when there were once thousands of acres of potato farms, but human lives kind of paid a price for it. And then the other point I wanted to make, and the book makes well, is that local town historians have not tackled this subject. This is not a subject. Uh, I think we, we say in the, in the story that 
you know, the founding fathers myth, the idea that our history begins when Europeans showed up in 1640 on the South Fork and the North Fork. Um, it's just nonsense. And that how come this story wasn't told? And it's an important book. And we have a good story on it in both papers. Beth and Chrissy, this is this hits home for our region um, as well. I know Bridgehampton in particular. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the Bridgehampton Child Care Center um, was created partly in response to a fire like that. Um, am I right that about is, that? Yeah, you're. That's right. That's right. That has it. That was the roots of the Bridgehampton Child Care and Recreational Center. They are. They they talk about it a lot, but. It, your Steve is right in the um, it really has gone unreported for so long, um, but it was kind of like um, it it led to change in Bridgehampton, and I know that um, even today, you know, there was a um, a wonderful woman who died of COVID nineteen, um, Mrs. O'Neill, who raised seven children in Bridgehampton after arriving here in the late nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties as a migrant farm worker in Ridgehampton. Beth, the, yeah. the, the, the local community um, in Bridgehampton um, was changed, changed in, in a lot of ways by these migrant, the migrant workers who came in, correct? I mean, this is part of our heritage um, and it continues to this day with some of the families. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's definitely part of the history, just a part of the history no one cared to really focus on. Yeah, and, and, and it's not. It is not. I mean, the history goes back a long way, but it, it, it's fairly recent too. I mean, I I remember writing a story in two thousand and two. I don't. I don't. I'm not going to name any names, but there was a, a, you know, kind of a high end real estate broker who, on on her way home from a party, had, um, um, you know, had been drinking and hit a migrant worker walking on the side of the road and and killed him. And you know, we covered the trial, and it was. The, the, you know, the, the trial itself and, and the case kind of displayed the, the disparity between those two sides and those two camps. And, and the, you know, the driver had some support, um, you know, and, and there was an outcry for the conditions that that this, um, you know, the, 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 the victim had, had been living in in one of these camps still in, in, in Bridgehampton. And that was, you know, that was 2002. That's not that long ago. Yeah. In the early 2000s, Bill, I, I spent a lot of time at what I thought and still to this day, I think was the last camp of its kind. It was on Depot Lane in Cutshaw, right by the railroad tracks. Mm. And there were about eight or 10 Southern born black men and women living there who were really, I think we headlined at the end of the line. I mean, they were really at the end. And when that camp, when that barn, the, the grading barn where they put bag potatoes into bags, when that burned down, there was nothing left for these people and there was nowhere to go. Mm. And I ended up taking one back to Georgia and where he, his mother was waiting for him. She hadn't seen him since he was a baby. Wow. Um, and another one of uh, two photographers and I drove because we, he couldn't get on a plane. He had no ID, had no wallet. We drove him all the way to McClellanville, South Carolina, where his family was wow. waiting for him. They hadn't seen him since the 1960s. These camps were horror shows. They were like more like prisons than anything else. And um, you can talk to the old police chiefs out here who say that Saturday night, because Saturday was payday, um, that most of these people never got anything. They would charge for beer. They would charge for food. They charge for your bed. They charge for, for a blanket. And the fires that Mark talks about in the book, uh, the, one, the bad one in Kutchog in 1961 at a camp that Edward R. Murrow filmed for his famous documentary um, on farm labor camps. 
uh, that fire in 1961 killed four men and they were using a kerosene heater to try to cook on. Um, these camps were really, really bad. But but it's it, it bears emphasis one more time. This continued right up until uh, a decade or so ago. I'm not sure that the uh, the migrant workers are, are are they still used? Steve, did he get into that in the book at all? Or is Margaret uh, is migrant labor still being used in some it, of the? It's definitely farms? not what it was, Joe. What it was for generations was the southern black men and women who would follow from apples or oranges, let's say, in Florida. They'd follow the corn crop and then the potato crop into Delaware and Maryland. And then they would end up on the South Fork and the North Fork doing all the potatoes that were once grown here. That whole world is gone. The black communities are still here. Right. And it's something that we as journalists need always to understand that all communities deserve our attention. Um, but the different the difference now is it's more Latino and it's totally different kind of farming than, than then. Um, but that that world of that southern born black men and women, the, the Edward R. Murrow documentary that came out in 1957, Harvest of Shame. You can see that Kutchog camp in Harvest of Shame. It's right there on Cox Lane in Kutchog. Horrible place. Absolutely horrible place. There's definitely still quite a bit of farm labor housing. Um, it's it's well, not, I don't know how well regulated by the state it is, but the state has an inspector who comes and, and talks with the workers who live in that housing and, and the farmers are required to leave so they can speak with the with the people working there one on one and ask them what's really going on. Yeah. Um, so that's so it's a, and it, you know, it's a multifaceted issue because it ties into the the lack of affordable housing in Absolutely. general. And, and, and the effect on the agricultural community is actually something we've talked about doing a, a closer look at in, in the coming months, because um, I've heard anecdotally that that some of the local farms uh, are, are really struggling to find any place for their farm help that they need to, to harvest. You know, the, agriculture is still a big part of the South Fork economy and you need labor to, to make that happen. And they're, they're simply the same problems that white collar workers are having trying to find places to live. Uh, folks who work in, in farm fields uh, they're in an even worse situation that the ability to, to find any kind of local housing for harvest season uh, is gone. And it's the farmers that are also paying the price for that. Uh, I think these workers uh, go elsewhere where where they can live and, and work. And and COVID also created a, a difficult situation with a lot of the places where, where the farm laborers were living on the North Fork because they're living in very close quarters and everybody had to kind of quarantine in their own little pod. A lot of them just quarantined right on the farm um, because that could spread like wildfire. And I mean, the history of the fire service on the East end is really shaped by a lot of these fires as well. I, I believe that's the origin of the Flanders fire department. Was, there was a labor camp. Yeah, fire it's it's that, an amazing stuff there, but affordable housing is such a hot button issue out here. Uh, Greenport, uh, we have a story in, in the Suffolk Times about a proposal to build affordable housing in Greenport. And already the comments on the story are, no, not there, not there, not there, not there. Never so th this not is in my a, backyard. This is, yeah, not in my backyard. <laughs> this is an issue that just won't stop. Yeah. Bill, we had a story this week about uh, the bridge, which is a, a very exclusive golf club up in Noyak that has a kind of a unique plan 
for uh, housing their the, some of the workers that they have that, that work on the golf course there. Right. They, they had had uh, kind of the dormitory housing that Beth was talking about for for their, um, you know, for their seasonal workers on the golf course. And what they want to do is bring in, I guess this is a trend right now, they're bringing in old shipping containers and converting them into housing so that these uh, workers and families can have, you, know, you might have a, a family in, in, in one um, or, you know, a, a smaller pod of, of four workers or whatever in, in the other pot or, or in the other container. The problem was, is the golf course was originally going to put in these um, these new container housing units, but they didn't have any bathrooms or shower facilities or whatever. So the town had to come in and say, if you want to do them, you're going to have to put in facilities rather than making people walk into uh, into the main golf course building. And I think they've agreed to do that. And, and they're trying to expedite it to, uh, to have it in place by the time the, uh, the golf course, uh, you know, picks up this, um, you know, before Memorial Day. It's It seems kind of sad to say that uh, I think the town did the right thing there in providing basic <laughs> levels basic. of human service to, yeah. to these workers. But I, no, I think they don't also, need bathrooms. You know. <laughs> it's also worth pointing out the, the container houses. Uh, that's a thing. And I believe there's one in there's a container house in uh, Sagaponic, if I'm not mistaken. That's that's sort of a high end. It's it's a trendy thing to. to the other people in Sagaponic know about that joke. <laughs> it can be a very trendy <laughs> thing to create housing out of these these old uh, shipping containers, but obviously in this case, it's it's more about just finding a cheap way to do it. But the I influx of people from the city and the the incredible rise in real estate prices all across the region. I, I don't know how this issue of affordable housing will ever, ever have any kind of resolution. I have a personal story on this is that um, my husband and I rent a tiny little studio apartment in Amagansett from a wonderful Boniker. And in the last week alone, we had three inquiries about, you know, a friend of a friend or saying, um, calling me up to say, hey, are you leaving your rental anytime soon? Because my son needs a place or this woman I know who needs a kidney transplant, it has too many medical bills for her current place and needs a cheaper place. You know, I, we are blessed to have probably the lowest rents I know of anybody. I know our rent is $800 a month in Amagansett. Oh wow. Oh, wow. And you are know, you moving out anytime soon? <laughs> it's, it's like a price control situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our utilities are included. It is amazing. And we love him so much. <laughs> Yeah, but see, um, that's if you a, lost it, that, how would you ever, what would the rent go to for the next person in there? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, you're what would you have to pay? If you, if you were out on the market for a similar uh, apartment right now, what, what would you, what would you be looking to, what, what do you think you'd end up having to pay for something similar, Chrissy? Um, in Amagansett, at least three grand a month, if yeah. not more, with utilities that we'd have to pay for ourselves. And to be quite honest, we did briefly look into moving to Manorville, Eastport, Santa Mariches. And there were a few more options. Of course, this was before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and that would have been, you know, meant we faced the trade parade every morning um, and different quality of life issues, but that would have been it. We want to, we want to have a family. We can't have a family in the studio apartment right now, yeah. you know? So That's it's, it's really crisis. Oh. I don't know the where any crisis went large right there, basically. 
Oh, sorry, spend some time in Greenport. I mean, Greenport had has and still has, in, in large extent, kind of a working class feel to it, where people could live. But even there, they argue about affordable housing. It's yeah, everywhere, it's, and it's just it's just. So I don't I don't know how how the the towns villages. I don't know how they would ever catch up at this point. I mean, there's no catching up. If they started building a unit a day today, I, I don't. It would still it wouldn't be enough. I just don't, we did, don't know what the answer is. We did a story just recently on a local artist from East Hampton who grew up there um, and is just sort of a, a, a microcosm of the problem that that you're losing locals who have been here their entire lives and want to stay here but can't. And we did an editorial that talked about the fact that I, you know, I genuinely believe this is going to be uh, a crisis for the region. Uh, it's been a crisis for a long time, but it, this is an existential crisis. I think that if regular people get priced out and we can't afford to maintain a healthy community out here, uh, that's going to start to take a toll on the region in general. And I, I do think it's a, I, I think it's unfortunate that, that the, the local leaders have talked about affordable housing in East Hampton. Chrissy has done some work. I mean, they've, they've certainly opened some facilities, but they it have, just hasn't been enough. It hasn't been enough, you know, and there were, there's another proposal on the table in East Hampton for a uh, property on uh, 27, just as you get towards Amagansett, if I'm not mistaken. But the one that in, uh, in Amagansett, Gansett Meadow, a lot of people fought that. And that, you know, was the first of its kind in Amagansett, where they were building, you know, apartments and expecting kids to come into the school district. And, you know, the school district was saying this might give us 60, 70 new children. And it's yielded about, I don't know, 20. Mm -hmm. um, and so that school's fears were not realized by the housing uh, development, but rather by the pandemic, when they're over the summer last year, 75 new children enrolled, doubling the school population. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, those were city folks mostly came out here and the school wasn't really up in arms about that. Yeah. They just, and I mean, it's a, it's a big building that they can, they have room for some kids. Um, yeah. I know in Riverhead, um, they, they put together that Riverside redevelopment uh, overlay district several years back to encourage development in Riverside. And the Riverhead School District now, which is bursting at the seams because no one can, no one, well, a lot of people with kids can't afford to live on either of the forks, so they've moved to Riverhead. The Riverhead School District is bursting at the seams and they're totally against any of the development that Southampton Town spent all this time working to facilitate in Riverside because they're afraid more kids are gonna come to the school. So, so they're gonna fight anything that happens there tooth and nail because there's just, there actually isn't room in the school. No, the schools, the Riverhead School District is packed to the walls. Yeah. And Bill, the, Southampton has done a little. I mean, there was a, a pretty nice project in Spionk that was done recently and the, the project in Tuckahoe on Sandy Hollow. Um, but these are all just drops in the bucket, aren't they? I mean, there's no sweeping. I mean, I think Fred Thiel has his legislation in Albany to create something similar to the CPF that would fund affordable housing. But, you know, part of the problem is we can fund it, but we don't really have a plan for how to make it happen with that money. And I, I think it's a little bit of the cart before the horse. Well, I, I think I think it starts with the money, though. If you come up with the money and there's a pot of money there, 
then I think that that the towns will figure out how to how to spend it. But you know, to, to Beth's point. Um, you know, the towns can come in and say, we want to do this here and do this there. But there's even though it's such a huge crisis, there are still those people that don't want it near them for fear of, you know, the, the word, you know, air quotes again, projects or or whatever, or higher density school districts looking at higher density. Um, it's, it's just I, I don't know how you fight that end of it. it it's a it's a you know, it, it's a war of convincing people that you know, that that the end result, like you were saying, Joe, is, is just, you know, a, a crumbling out here if you don't have if you don't have year round people living out here. I, I you know, I don't know. But I, I think the funding thing, I, I think, you know, deals legislation would help if you create that, um, you know, that near CPF money. I think it's a quarter percent or half percent. I'm, I don't remember. I, I think that adds up quickly out here. Um, it's too bad that it didn't pass last year with with the boom that we saw from. Um, it passed the governor, actually. Well, no, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's it, it certainly there would have been a lot of money in the pot right now for for those um, for those kinds of projects. Fred okay. Thiel says that that there's actually a, a potential for that to go um, statewide now because some of the upstate communities are looking for something similar. So keep an eye on that. That's something that may change in the, in the coming year, legislative year, although who knows what's going to happen in Albany right now, the way things are right now. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, with Bill Sutton, my co-host. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group, Christy Sampson of the East Hampton Star, and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. And Christy, I want to go back to something that you talked about. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, Beth, Beth had mentioned that, that you know, the influx of students in, in Riverhead, uh, in in part, uh, some, and, and all the local districts are seeing some influx of people with uh, the movement out here from the pandemic. It's a school budget time. And so now all of the districts are starting to take stock of what the the uh, pandemic has done to their finances. What are, what are we finding in general on the South Fork? So on the South Fork, um, you initially had every district saying, um, but Bridgehampton saying, we're going to stick to the tax cap. We're not going to pierce it. Bridgehampton is developing an over the cap budget that, um, you know, they had a, like a forum, not a hearing, but a forum to take community input from um, folks about, you know, hey, we're going to try to pierce the tax cap. What do you think? And nobody said anything. There were like mm -hmm. 30 people on the call and nobody said anything. Um, and so I have a feeling people don't really understand some of this that we should explain very briefly. We can get into the weeds here in a hurry, but there's a there's a cap uh, that the state has imposed on how much you can increase your tax levy from one year to the next. And it basically requires districts to, to stay within that. And if they're going to exceed it, you have to get your voters to sign off on it. And Chrissy, the problem is at these hearings, People won't speak up, but then they won't vote for a budget that's that's going up sometimes, too. Right. That's part of the problem. That's yeah. And um, that is part of the problem, Joe. Thank you for that very clear explanation of the state tax cap, because I sort of just go into the numbers. People are like, why are you weird? Because you like school budgets. But um, <laughs> did I, did I get reporters it? curse? I threw reporters. Yeah. The question yeah. is, did I get it right, Chrissy? Because you I, it's, did. Yeah, you were right. It's a cap on the increase from one year to the next, which is which makes yeah. it even more complicated. Well, part of the problem is it's a percentage. So the smaller districts, 
because they have fewer, the, 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 the percentages fluctuate a lot more for the smaller districts. So if Bridgehampton gets an influx of 10 kids, it means a lot more than a bigger district. Well, to make it even more complicated, they call it a 2% tax cap, but it's not 2% because it's adjusted for, for inflation <laughs> and, and for all kinds of different. Yeah, there it is. And it's, it's usually much less than 2%. <laughs> um, it, what's interesting is that it's less than 2% to start with, but because of real estate development and certain like debt exclusions, I'm getting into the weeds here again, I'm sorry, but like Montauk, for example, could um, have a tax levy increase of as much as 4%. They're going much lower because they ha they don't need to go all the way up. But for instance, Amagansett, Springs, um, Sag Harbor, they're going right to the limit. Um, and Springs is now talking about, do we even try to pierce the cap? Ridgehampton has done it twice before. Um, right. well, and and I, this would be their third time. And it's partly because, as Beth said, the, the <clears throat> budget fluctuates so much uh, that, that they're forced to do that. The other complication here, by the way, since we're already in the weeds, is that uh, it's, it's a cap on the tax levy increase, which is the total amount that you collect. And with property values going up, that means you can reduce the tax rate and still collect more taxes in some cases. And so a lot of districts play games with, well, we're cutting the tax rate. Yay. Every, well, that doesn't necessarily mean tax bills are going down because assessments are going up. So it's, it's complicated. But uh, are any of the districts really in uh, deep trouble uh, financially or, or uh, are we sort of working on the margins here, Christy, generally? I think that we're working on the margins for the most part. Really, there's only on the South Fork two districts, maybe three um, that are really struggling right now with this. Um, one of the things that really hit the district's heart is obviously COVID-19 right. because they weren't prepared for it. They had to dip into their like reserve, their surpluses in order to make ends meet this year which means that there's less of that available next year for the same purpose. So just to get into Bridgehampton again for a second, they are proposing an over-the-cap budget, but that budget doesn't even include the extra teachers they hired this year to make sure that they had small class sizes, smaller class sizes. And they all you know had to I mean? buy plexiglass dividers and PPE yeah. and, you know, and, and all of that stuff. Um, so, but the, the federal... Um, so, so the Biden's federal bailout is going to provide some funds to to these districts, and I think that has them. Um, you know, they weren't sure before, you know, last week or two weeks ago, you know, what they would be getting, and I'm sure that, I, I don't know that they have the exact numbers now, but it seems like they're they're starting to relax a little, knowing that they're going to get some of that federal money. Um, passed through the state, it's going to come as as a state aid increase, I guess. Um, but th that's going to help a little bit, right, Chrissy? Yeah, that's what Springs is banking on right now. Um, and quite frankly, like, it also hinges on the state budget being finalized by April 1st. And a lot of the school districts are saying like, oh, our numbers can change a little bit or a lot, depending on what our final amount of money is from the state. Um, and so that's why you don't get a lot of like solid proposals right now. It's all in flux because, you know, and there have been years in the past when the state budget did not come through on April 1st, which really leaves school districts in a lurch. It could be even so worse. So it comes back to Cuomo. Yeah, exactly. Every, as I said, all roads lead to, to Governor Cuomo right now. Steve and Beth, basically the same situation on the North Fork and in Riverhead, correct? 
Yeah, yeah, it's definitely they're working on the margins. Uh, Greenport's talked about piercing the cap, but um, they're all just trying to make this thing work. Um, Riverhead probably has a bigger struggle um, because the uh, the budgets get turned down and their classrooms are jammed. Um, but they'll get through this. The, the as as Bill points out, the federal relief money is going to make a big difference, or at least at least we'll get them through it. And Beth, I guess the big question is: Will people have a little more patience? For school budgets this year under the circumstances because it has been such an unusual year and it's possible that voters may cut the districts a little slack but i find myself hesitating even as i say that to, to picture that actually happening not to cut beth off but the riverhead voters last year in the midst of the of the pandemic voted down the budget twice yeah i don't know it maybe it may be a tough call what do you think but beth? that was that was mail-in voting which i don't know how that played into it. I know the turnout was greater because of it, because um, uh, everybody got a ballot in the mail. Mm. They're not going to do that this year. So. Okay. It's still, they can still request. They can still yeah. request it. Um, but yeah, there will be in-person voting this year. Yeah. It'll be a little different this time around than it was last time, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We're running towards the end. It's behind the headlines. I'm Joe Shaw with Bill Sutton of the Express News Group, Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group, Chrissy Sampson of the East Hampton Star, and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. Uh, real, real briefly, uh, there was an announcement made this week uh, from the, the county law enforcement about a real concern about illegal drugs that are out there. Uh, you guys all saw that announcement. Can, can someone, Beth, can you kind of sum it up? Uh, what what the concern is? Don't buy prescription drugs <laughs> from <laughs> anyone the on the street. Ill, Ill, Ill yeah, don't do it. <laughs> okay, that sums that up. There it is. Um, what's, uh, what's Steve the, was. It could be fentanyl. Go ahead. Kill what, you in what, a what was the, the alert? The alert. Steve is was that talking the, about this earlier. Yeah, the, basically the DA um, uh, Tim Sinney put out kind of an urgent, I think he actually called it an urgent safety announcement. I think there's the language he uses used in his press release um, that um, pills being sold on the street as Adderall, which is a legal prescription pill, were in fact um, fentanyl and that there have been arrests of people marketing the fake pills, the counterfeit pills, and there have been deaths off those counterfeit pills. So Cine went on, um, cranked out this urgent, as he called it, urgent safety announcement last week. Uh, we played it prominently in our papers, um, and it's clearly, um, clearly a big, big crisis. Um, fentanyl will kill you. I mean, talk to first responders. They, they don't even want to touch it. Uh, it's so powerful. It's scary stuff. And people are cranking these pills out and selling them to people as something else. Um, and what we what looking forward to what we want to do here, uh, we need to go back over the last year and look at the drug crisis under the under the lid of the COVID-19 when that was all the news was generating and see what was going on, because this seems to just be making it far, far worse. We were making some gains on opioids uh, before the, the pandemic hit. But uh, I do wonder if we lost some ground and and. And, you know, with all the different illegal drugs, as everybody was locked down for, for a little while. I mean, you know, see the like liquor stores weren't deemed an essential business. 
and not just drugs, but alcohol use as well. I mean, yeah. and people weren't accessing services as much as they were before either. Yeah. You could get mixed drinks takeout. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> curbside mixed margarita drink. at the curbside. I think the impact of fentanyl, uh, you know, on the drug problem that we have in, in America, but in this region in particular, can't be overstated. I mean, it's a it's a chemically created opioid that is many, many times more powerful uh, than heroin. And it's I believe it's just cheap to import and use. And that's why illegal drug manufacturers are using it more and more. Um, and now they're using it to, to they're mislabeling it and, and selling it to people without concern about the potential yeah. impact, but it really can kill people. Right. Steve? I mean, it's, oh, yeah. fentanyl oh, it, is, is deadly. Fentanyl is very deadly. The other counterfeit that's out there with fentanyl is oxycodone. So if you're a patient who had a prescription at a doctor's office for oxy, and then you, you did the doctor wouldn't renew that prescription, and now you're buying them off the street. According to Cindy's announcement, those are also yes. This looks like it looks exactly like oxycodone. It's actually fentanyl. Um, so this this is a very very dark turn in this drug crisis, and it seems again maybe I'm mixing things up, but it seems to come at while we're discussing legalized marijuana in the state. And now you have this crisis, and I don't know. I don't know where all this is going to go. It's an interesting point. I mean, I, I, and I think part of the interesting thing to look at on a national level is the states that have legalized marijuana and how that's affected drug use in general. And I don't know that it's uh, we have enough data at this point to, to draw any conclusions. But uh, but you're right. The, the, it's striking that it's happening uh, in the middle of that conversation, Bill, that that you know that while we're talking about legalizing marijuana, we're having these issues. With crisis. There's yeah. been discussion in Colorado, uh, Joe, where marijuana has been legal for a while. That the teenage use of marijuana is actually a, a crisis there. So there, there are people in Colorado thinking this was really a big mistake. Hmm. Um, yeah. But again, that it comes at a time when the DA has to have an emergency press conference about these pills out there please don't take them please turn them in if you if you sell to this to people and they die we will prosecute you for for murder this is a really big really big deal i think we should tip our hat to the to the district attorney for uh getting out in front of this Absolutely. and, and make, making public the public aware at least for the most part so we're we're uh coming close to the end here and i want to give everybody a chance uh, i want to talk about stories uh that we're working on uh, as we speak for the coming days and weeks uh, ahead. Chrissy, is there something specific you're working on? Oh, where to start? Um, <laughs> it's always a, a full plate, isn't it? It is, yeah. We're, we're talking about legal, the legalizing marijuana, recreational marijuana. And the other thing that we're talking about um, is we're digging a little bit more into the Asian American hate crimes. Um, I know that the, you know, you guys did a really great piece focusing on a Pearson Asian American culture club, and I'm digging into the Ross school this week. Great. That's the interesting stuff. Yeah. Good story this week uh, from Kaylin Riley in our papers. Steve, what are you working on? Well, we have a lot of things going on. It's, it's interesting. In just the last few weeks, um, Grant Parpan has been writing it um, Two um, prominent people in Southall have been arrested for child pornography. Mm -hmm. 
uh, one, the former number two in the Democratic Party in Southhold, and a longtime employee of the town building department. And um, just this week, um, a member now resigned, a member of the ZBA in Greenport, child pornography. Uh, special FBI units have come out and raided these houses. Uh, luckily for us, we had tips that, they, that this was going on and we were able to get it all online pretty quickly. But even when I, I was out in Greenport helping Grant with the story and just talking to people, they're like, my God, this guy in this town, an old time family, res, old time family name here, member of government, child, the FBI's in his house taking, taking out boxes and computers. Just and stunning. Yeah. Really, really shaking people up really badly. And yeah. on the first arrest of the of the former Democratic official on the town building department guy, he was a Boy Scout leader as well. So that scared the hell out of parents. Yeah, that was just just terrible stuff. And then to have the follow up this week with with someone else arrested another something with a whole other Beth, thing. Beth, we've got about thirty seconds. What what are you looking at uh, headlines wise? Uh, well, we're uh, Drawdown East End, which is this group that's trying to take carbon out of the atmosphere, mm -hmm. trying to help us all help get carbon out of the atmosphere is. Uh, doing this thing on kelp farming next Tuesday. Um, go to drawdowneastendibelieve.org. Uh, but um, they're trying to get the community to rally around it. Kind of an interesting proposal that that could uh, look to the uh, agricultural history of the region and, and try and do some good for the climate at the same time. So that's about all the time we have then for this week. I appreciate you guys. Uh, thank you to Chrissy Sampson, to Beth Young, to Steve Wick, to my co-host Bill Sutton. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, this was Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM, and we will be back next week. Thank you, guys. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Really appreciate it.